A pastor and a priest walk into a movie theater. Hi, I'm movie geek Father Andrew Miller of the Celtic Rite Old Catholic Church. And I'm cinema lover Reverend Michelle Byerly of the United Methodist Church. And this is A Pastor and a Priest Walk Into a Movie Theater, a podcast about faith, life, and the silver screen. Now, before I introduce what our movie for today is, this is our first podcast, and I figured we'd uh, give a little bit of an introduction. Great. Well, yes, I'm Reverend Michelle Byerly of the United Methodist Church. I serve currently in uh, North Central Kansas, but also in Nebraska as well at times. And I got into movies, particularly in college, after having taken a class on Hitchcock and the Cinema of Terror and learning about how movies work and the language of movies. And then in seminary, I met the wonderful Father Andrew Miller, and we would get together and watch movies and nerd out and talk theology with them. And I'm Father Andrew Miller. First off, uh, uh, I'm a priest, but I'm, I'm not a Roman Catholic priest. I'm a, a member of the so-called independent sacramental movement, uh, most particularly the Celtic Rite Old Catholic Church. Uh, no need to go into a huge introduction about that, but basically we're Catholics who are not in communion with Rome or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, it's interesting. My, my uh, um, introduction into to movies comes much the same time as my introduction into religion itself. Right about 2001, I saw a film that really touched my heart in a very interesting way. And it's it, what's further interesting is that it's it's, it's a bad movie. It's, it's a terrible movie. I, today, I, I can't stand it. Uh, it's the 2001 film, uh, war film Pearl Harbor. When I saw it, I was filled with this just overwhelming sense of emotion. And around about the same time, I um, joined uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and became a, a Mormon. Uh, of course, I'm, I'm not a Mormon anymore, but my spirituality at the time was was very emotionalistic. And what attracted me to cinema in general was the ability to uh, sort of manipulate my emotions and to you know, experience and encounter powerful emotions. That's a little bit of my story. So as we get into our movie for today, we want to particularly acknowledge that, well, I acknowledge for myself that I, I do come from a very Christocentric, as a, as a United Methodist Christian, that is the language that I breathe. Our movie for today is Disney's Moana. And it is one of those that we recognize and acknowledge that comes from a tradition different than our own. But we will be looking at it through some of our own lenses. We want to acknowledge that and we want to, our hope is to treat it with respect within its own lens as well as to understand when we see it, here's how we interpret it in our lens as well. And so um, I want to acknowledge that up front as we get started as well. Yeah, and it's not just uh, Moana. Uh, the, the, Pastor Michelle and I are both Christians. I mean, that and mm-hmm. and that is at the heart of, of who we are as people. Yeah. And so this is a primarily Christian podcast. It's our intention that when we discuss the theology and mythology of, of non-Christian traditions uh, that we encounter in, in film, that we'll be um, respectful in that uh, we're not going to discuss it from, from a perspective of judgment or a perspective of uh, we are right and they're wrong. Um, I think both Pastor Michelle and I would have a little bit more complicated uh, views than than that uh, fundamentalist approach. Which gets us into another uh, element of this. Um, part of my hope in this podcast is to broaden the wider cultural conversation and understanding of what Christianity can be. Um, yeah, Father Andrew mentioned the very fundamentalist view. I personally am very much not. I have a much broader understanding of what Christianity can be. I still consider myself very much rooted in the biblical tradition, rooted in my tradition as a as a Wesleyan in the United Methodist Church through the teachings of John and Charles Wesley, but also with the ability to think and reason and to use our what we call our quadrilateral of scripture tradition reason and experience editor wesley here since when you put two or more nerds on any subject together they will inevitably start using highly technical jargon i'm here to define terms for you 
Fittingly enough, the first term I'll be defining is the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Though never named as such by John Wesley, founder of the Methodist movement, the Wesleyan Quadrilateral is the modern term for the four principal factors that he believed illuminate the core of the Christian faith for the believer. They are first, scripture, second, tradition, third, reason, and fourth, experience. Most modern Methodists consider scripture to be the primary source, though the other three are extremely important. And all of that, and my hope is to bring all of that into our conversations here. Yeah, both Pastor Michelle and I, I think, and, and this is true not only of uh, Moana, at least I hope it will be true of Moana, but I also hope it will be true of every movie that we that we encounter um, on this journey, is that both Pastor M Michelle and I come from uh, what might be described as the, um, uh, perhaps unfairly, the mainline liberal tradition in, in Christianity, that, you know, and, and we, that, that's often distinguished from the fundamentalist tradition. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the, the difference is, is that um, Pastor Michelle and I understand and I'm, I realize I'm speaking for you a lot here, uh, Michelle. Hey, I'm guilty of it too here. I've used a lot of we, so we're well, good. <laughs> well, I, I, I do, to, to be fair, I, I, from our conversations, I do think it's, it's accurate to say that um, mm -hmm. uh, neither of us are, are, are Christians who go about trying to uh, consciously proselytize and consciously uh, um, apologize and consciously um, engage in um, that intellectual movement that decries other religions as wrong while we're right. That's that's not our business here, and uh, our business here is to to discuss movies from through a Christian lens. But uh, if you, the listener, would like to be a part of the discussion and to bring another lens into the in, in, into this discussion, uh, then by all means comment. And who knows, as the podcast uh, moves forward, we might have guests from other religious traditions. We have two very good Unitarian Universalist friends, uh, <laughs> whom, yes. if I'm not mistaken, do not identify as Christians. Are we ready to jump into today's movie? I figure we are ready. Today's movie, as I said, is Disney's Moana. That came, if you have not had a chance to see it, we uh, really encourage you to watch it. We are definitely going to get into spoilers and plot twists. And um, so we, we function under the assumption that you've already seen the movie mm -hmm. um, as we get into it. So the overall tale is of this woman Moana. The, the story starts with um, their creation story and also kind of the complications therein with the island Tefiti being created and then all of these creatures and particularly Maui who comes to steal that creation and steals the heart of Tefiti and then out of that comes Teka and then there's this kind of destructive chaos um, if that's an accurate way to describe it, that comes out of that. And it eventually reaches the island of Moana, who is trying to figure out who she is, and she's trying to figure out her place. And she goes on this journey to restore the, the heart of Te Fiti um, with the help of demigod Maui. So that's the general plot of the story. We'll get into it as we get further. Anything that you want to add? No, I, I think that there, it's a very, very rich, theologically rich uh, story. Mm. And, um, and and there are, there are just so many different categories of, of theology that we can talk about here. But I'm curious, what aspect would you like to talk about first? Oh, um, I think for me, the very first one is this relationship between Maui and Moana. It, it, from the from my perspective in reading the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Bible Old Testament, we see a lot of these examples of human beings who are wrestling with God. And at first, Maui and Moana have a very kind of adversarial relationship with one another. And um, Moana has her agenda and she's trying to get Maui to do things that she wants so that she can help her people. He's not having it at first because he's afraid. We learn a little bit of why that is and his baggage and his stuff with it. But I think for me, I am a fan of any story that has this very connected relationship between humanity and the divine, you know, whatever that form looks like. 
So who in this story do you think is the God character and who in this story do you think is the human character? Mm. Well, I, I know you and I have different perspectives on this. I think, you know, it, the easy surface level is that Maui is the demigod and he has that and Moana is very much human. But then they also both come into contact with Te Fiti, who is a, a goddess herself. And, and we see some of that interaction at the very end. As I said, I know you have some thoughts on this, and so I'd like to hear your thought on that question. Yeah, I, in fact, I would I, I, I would reverse it. I would say that mm -hmm. uh, Maui, it's it's odd that he's called a demigod, uh, but Maui is the very human character. And uh, Moana, although she definitely grows and is flawed, is, I think, uh, a kind of Christ figure in the film. It's her mission, her chosen mission, which is another theological category we should discuss. Her mission is to redeem her people. Her mission is to redeem nature. And it ends up being to redeem Maui. And uh, um, Maui is, in, in a sense, the, the fallen one. And, and I, I looked at this story through a very Christian, traditional Christian lens of, of original sin. And of course, Polynesian culture, to my knowledge, doesn't really have an understanding of, Christ, of original sin, at least not the same way we do. But I looked at it through that lens and I saw Maui as fallen and uh, Moana as a kind of Christ figure. Yeah, so, um, and that gets us into... The next topic, which is identity, which was another big theme for me in this story. We see Moana, who is coming of age into her identity. She's trying to figure out inside of her, there's this very strong sense of the ocean has called her to this mission. This is the task for her. And yet she also has responsibilities to her people that her parents are very much trying to help her grow into. And she does to some extent. Um, and in fact, she comes to the place where she realizes that because of her duty to her people, she needs to risk going out beyond the reef and, and completing the prophecy to, to take Maui to return the heart of Te Fiti. And then Maui himself, we even kind of get a little bit of how he has come to be who he is and why he is the way he is. And his all of his tattoos tell his story and he gains a new one along the way and then we also have this identity of te fiti and te ka where at the beginning of the movie we don't understand that they're ultimately the same person mm. but te ka is what happens when te fiti's heart has been stolen from her when her identity has been so transformed by the trauma that she's experienced and that was another lens that i sometimes look at this through is just that the sense of trauma and how that transforms people and there's that is also in the uh, christian scriptures as well where we see people who experience these different traumas and how they maintain their identity as people through the midst of that and and how god continues to work in them and continues to be a part of who they are yeah i feel so. like at the beginning of the film there is a kind of dialectical tension in moana's very identity between her wanting to um mm -hmm. be a voyager and at the same time her uh her role as a public official in her community essentially which she's very good at and uh those two are very at the beginning of the film are, i think set up quite distinct from one another almost warring within her and uh in fact i think that signature song of of, of the uh movie how far i'll go she even sings what's wrong with me it's in, these two draws are just are right. at war within her but the entire film is a kind of resolution of that tension into a synthesis, which is that not only does she get to fulfill her dream as, as a Voyager, it's actually by doing that that she is able to fulfill her duty as a leader in her or of her people. Yes. Yeah, I love, I love that song where, you know, as her parents are trying to show her her role as she's stepping into it, there's always that the, the grandma's over there, the ocean's over there. She kind of sees this thing that's kind of pulling her away. Yeah, and in Christian um, spirituality, I think there is this tension, this dialectical tension between a sense of you know, discipline and a sense of, of living life according to a rule of life mm -hmm. 
And um, at the same time, there's also a sense in which uh, Christianity and you know, living a Christian life is about experiencing and expressing a kind of holy and prophetic mischief <laughs> that, that is outside of the, the strictures of, of, of polite society. And I think that you see Moana being drawn in both directions, I think in much the same way as uh, people of our faith are pulled in both directions or should be pulled in both directions. Yeah. Well, and as you were talking, I think another piece of it is I think we are called to live into who we are created to be. You know, if we as Christians believe that we are created in the image and likeness of God, to deny that or to hide that or to, to not fulfill that is also a place of tension within us. And that is kind of where some of that synthesis can come in, that it is okay to live into who you are, even if that is different than what the world is telling you or what mm. you think you should do. Indeed. So I have to say, I, I saw the film and, and this uh, gets into a little bit of my understanding of theology. Um, I, I consider myself to be both a progressive and a traditionalist in the sense my understanding of theology is very much so informed by in much the same way as yours is, is by wesleyanism the traditional method wesleyanism mine is very much informed by um what we might call paleo orthodoxy the seven ecumenical councils and and the you know the traditions of catholic church um broadly defined now through that lens i saw the entire story from the perspective of uh, of original sin and uh, sin and redemption and um, I want to disclaim something really quickly that my understanding of original sin is not the naive version where um, because someone sinned in the past, it is as if we have sinned ourselves and therefore are just as guilty and therefore just as worthy of punishment. No, to me, original sin is the way in which um, an action has consequences that affect other people and that are difficult to escape. And so the stealing of the heart affects people who did not steal the heart. The, the people of Montanui were not guilty of taking Tefiti's heart, and yet the taking of Tefiti's heart was going to destroy them as well. And um, furthermore, uh, what leads to original sin, excuse me, what leads to Maui's sin, if you want to call it that, is a sense of narcissistic injury, um, his sense of being unloved, that he, they, they, he discusses that with, with Moana later in the film, that, that right. he, he did what he did in order to kind of earn human love because his family did not love him. On the other hand, in uh, Hebrew mythology, it's uh, a sense of um, wanting to become like God, a, a sense of wanting to, to do what you are capable of without really fully realizing the moral maturity necessary to do what you're capable of. But I, I do think there are Which parallels. ties into the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Editor Wesley again, since we by no means expect our listeners to have the entire Bible or any other scripture memorized, whenever our delightful theological nerds reference a specific passage, I'll be jumping in to read said passage. Here is Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, New International Version. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Where the issue, you know, yes, they took the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, but then if you read in the text, God says, now that they have that, if they have the tree of life, they would become too much like God. And so because of that, they're, they're cast out from, from the garden. Yeah, and it, it's interesting how um, in much the same way, I, I find that um, uh, the, and again, I, I'm a Christian, so I'm looking at this through the lens of, of my faith. This is not Polynesian, Polynesian theology by any stretch, um, but there is a kind of, of similarity I find between uh, the triad of Moana, of Tefiti Teka, and uh, the ocean, 
um, as a kind of uh, uh, parallel to the to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity of um, uh, the Father, the ascended Father. If we want to get into some somewhat problematic Western theology there, but the ascended Father who demands satisfaction. Mm-hmm. The that's uh, one theory of atonement. Yeah. yeah. Editor Wesley, yet again, feel like we were just here. Anyway, there are multiple theories of atonement throughout Christian philosophy and theology. Anselm of Canterbury's satisfaction theory argues that Christ, by his own sacrificial choice, was punished in the place of sinners, and thus satisfied the demands of justice so that God, in the role of the offended father, could justify forgiving the sin of humanity. In response to this, Peter Abelard argued in his moral influence theory that rather than offended, harsh, and judgmental, God is loving, forgiving, and nurturing. His theory states that Jesus died as a demonstration of God's love, and this demonstration is capable of turning the hearts and minds of sinners back to God, and thus that the atonement is on the part of humanity rather than on the part of God. There are also many other theories of atonement, including but not limited to the Christus Victor theory, the last scapegoat theory, and the ransom theory. Yeah, yeah. the um, Christ figure who brings satisfaction, and then, of course, the, uh, the, the all-present spirit that is the ocean, sort of guiding things in a very almost comical way. And kind of along with that, so you talked about the comedy, and I, I want to look at the character of the grandmother mm. as part of this, too, because she's an important guide for Moana. She helps Moana to understand her role, her call. She encourages her, but lets her explore things for herself. Um, she is also kind of that, she has that mischief to her as well. And you see her, like you see her dancing near the ocean. And um, I, I actually just watched the movie again recently. And for me, something I've always appreciated is just the freedom of dancing and movement and it's very much a part of that culture and i think in my own culture we're the there are some nicknames for not methodism per se but others of the frozen chosen mm-hmm. you know and i and i think it's kind of neat to see that that movement and and specifically with the grandmother too she's she acknowledges she uses the phrase i'm the village crazy lady <laughs> she says you know if if i came back i'd come back as a manta ray or, mm-hmm. right and it ends up being that that's what she does and and we see her spirit she's also important in in back to this theme of identity she tells moana that you've heard all of the stories of your people but one and she helps moana to find the the canoes that are more designed to go over the large waves of the reef that um, she sees moana sees this vision of her ancestors and she learns from that that her people were voyagers and that they were that's who they were and they'd become disconnected from that um for me we talked about sin and a big component of sin for me is that separation Mm. from how we relate to god but also how we relate to ourselves and to one another um it's a it's almost like we're missing a piece of our identity and i think identity and in in the film but also in 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 the practice of religion generally is is found largely in living out stories what story are you going to live out indeed that's what the Mm -hmm. sacraments are they're rituals that guide our lives in the path of a certain kind of story and i think what what moana finds is is that the story that she wants to live out is the story of her ancestors who become kind of saints There's an entire um, tradition in theology called post-liberalism or narrative theology, which which understands Christianity in much the same way, is that uh, it's a series of stories that that we live out as a community and um, principally in the sacraments. Moana can be seen in that way as well. And then there's also post-modernism that also is about narrative and story and and telling our story along the way. 
I'd like to talk about a, a little bit about chosenness because I think yeah. the idea of chosenness in in the film is is extremely important. Uh, Moana is called by the very words the chosen one, and uh, she wonders, I think, like a lot of us do, why she was chosen. I believe she, or I believe that uh, Maui even says at one point that the ocean chose wrong, and uh, uh, of course Jesus says. I, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. Oh, come on again? Already? Really? John chapter 15, verse 16, New International Version. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And I think what that reinforces is there's a, a theology of chosenness that, that understands that um, it occurs at the initiative of the divine. It uh, is not about what the chosen one brings to the table. It is ultimately about how the God figure, in our understanding God, can mold and shape and qualify the chosen one to accomplish that task. Uh, it's not about her at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going through the process of ordination, at least in the Methodist tradition, there was a whole section of our interview that was called Call and Disciplined Life. And so part of that was talking about how do we understand our call? How do we see ourselves living it out? And how has that been affirmed in our community? And I think we see all of that for Moana. You know, we see very early on when the ocean chooses her, um, where she hears that that kind of whisper, or metaphorically, of, of the ocean that's always just right there calling to her. But then there's also the call of her community that says, we care about you, we support you, we will accept you. Um, and, and those are both very important parts of, of understanding call. And then um, we also have the phrase that God does not call the equipped god equips those who are called and i think sometimes that expression can be a little bit a little bit cliche really but there is truth to it that you're right that god doesn't always choose the person who seems the most obvious but god can use the gifts that a person brings and you learn new ones along the way and we see that with moana too because the first time she goes out on the reef she gets herself handed to her you know she she doesn't get very far before she has to go back and even still getting to the island where maui is she needs help from the ocean and and even then she needs help from maui who teaches her and so all along the way she's not doing it on her own and i think that sometimes we think that when we're called we have to have it all together and the truth is you know it's it's almost a little scary to admit this but i i think if pastors do not have a moment where at least one point in their ministry they question why am i here why am i doing this then maybe they have some work to continue doing only one yeah exactly you know i think um i think that's natural and normal for us to to question ourselves at some point in our ministry and to say those times are going to happen there's going to be those times where it feels like you're not getting anywhere and so the what's important is that you keep pushing through you keep working you keep you stay connected with whatever gives you purpose or meaning in your life god for me whatever it might be for you. You know, the, the concept of, of calledness or vocation and mm-hmm. is in, as, as intimately tied in the idea of being chosen, that each individual person is chosen for a particular purpose. Uh, of course, that's a controversial theological statement. But a couple of things that I, I, I notice with that, the, the first is, is my favorite part in the movie is um, the line in that song, I am Moana, where she is about to give up and she, her grandmother appears to her she uh she sings the call isn't out there at all it's inside me 
And um, I, at first, I, I sort of enc encountered that, uh, although I thought it was beautiful, I sort of encountered that uh, antagonistically because I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, but the call isn't just inside you. The call comes from your community. The call comes from uh, your grandmother. And, and you know, for us as, as, as Christians, the call comes from God. The call comes from the church, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, the, then, then I realized, well, the call does, and, and the movie acknowledges this implicitly, the call does come from her community. You see that in that very song where the, the voyagers are sailing past her and they have that moment where they look at each other, that that call comes from, from, from other people. But it's encountered inside of her. It's sort of implanted in her very self to where it's, in, it's, it's encountered. And, and, and the second thing I, I notice is, is that, yes, it comes from a community. And yes, the, 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 the idea of community is just very present in that entire song with, the, with, with well, the presence of her grandmother and the, the saints who have gone before uh, this, this I, I, I sort of thought about it as in, in, in light of the yeah. veneration of the saints, but- A great uh, cloud of witnesses or- Yeah, and, and yet um, her mission is to leave her church and go out on her own. So, so there's a dialectical tension between a kind of individualism and, and, and membership in her um, in her in her community, and then th the second thing I notice is if if Moana is the Christ figure, I'm a Trinitarian Christian, so therefore if Moana is a God figure, then that's a very th that makes Moana a kind of expression of well process theology. There we go. Nice long break between obscure terms. Perfect. Process theology developed from Alfred North Whitehead's process philosophy, holds that it is an essential attribute of God to affect and be affected by the passage of time. This is in contrast to traditional Christian theism, which holds God to be in all respects eternal, unchanging, and unaffected by the world, or in other words, impassable. Process theology does maintain that God is eternal, in that God will never die, unchanging, in that God will always strive for good, and impassable, in that God cannot be destroyed. However, process theology also emphasizes that the defining element of God is God's relationship with the world, and thus that as the world evolves, God's relationship with the world will evolve, and in turn, God will evolve. Yeah, and so then this movie is very much about a process of becoming after that long definition. And then I also know that process theology is very rooted in the the natural world, not in the deistic sense, but in the sense that the, I think the term is panentheistic, God in the world. What? No, you were doing so well keeping the jargon spaced out, and now you... Pantheism can be translated as all is God, and is the belief that God and the universe are one, or that the universe is a manifestation of God. Panantheism can be translated as all is in God, and it is the belief that the divine pervades and interpenetrates every part of the universe, but also extends beyond space and time. And, um... God affected by the world and God affecting the world. We are co-creators with God. And we see that in this, um, particularly in the ending with Moana and Te Fiti Te Ka. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, uh, um, sticking with, uh, with, with both of those characters as analogous to God, of course, uh, Moana learns a great deal um, and indeed finds a kind of redemption herself in that the the two aspects of herself that she experiences as tearing her apart become synthesized. That sense of wanting to go out and be that voyager and explorer is the very way in which she saves her people and expresses her, her her responsibility so 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 that she finds her own redemption there. It's a very process oriented uh, story because um, the god figures in the story are almost flawed. I, know, I think they are flawed, especially Moana, but especially Teka, who in a sense I think might represent the father 
in that you see that when Moana is addressing Teha, what does she say? It doesn't define you. You've been hurt, mm-hmm. you've been abused, but it doesn't define you. In that yeah. sense, there's a, there's a sense in which uh, the, the, the character, I think most um, corresponding to God the Father, learns and changes and is affected by creation. Of course, full disclosure, I am not a process theologian, <laughs> but uh, it, it's a fascinating uh, way of looking at, at things. And then um, you talked about Moana's redemption, but for me, I also think it's important to talk Maui's redemption in that case, because I appreciate his journey of, you know, we learn that he was very much hurt by being rejected by humans. He was taken in by the divine and he takes what he has experience with and he's trying to give it back to humanity to earn their approval. He takes the heart of Tefiti. He later eventually grudgingly, but over time does return it. And I love how he apologizes. Indeed. He doesn't excuse himself. He just simply says, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Mm. I don't even think he says, please forgive me. I think he just says, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a lot of different kinds of, of redemption in the film. I, I think there is the, the, that redemption from the more traditional sense of redemption from sin that occurs through repentance, turning away from sin and asking for forgiveness in the traditional sense of the term. There's also um, redemption as a function of restoring cosmic harmony, created harmony, mm-hmm. um, right. that and, and that is, I think, the the, the essential story of Tefiti there, the the, the restoration of her heart, um, and of course <clears throat> being returned to a whole state. Right, and how that affects the entire world, uh, especially the far-off island of Montanui, which is dying because of something that, because of disharmony that they are not responsible for and have very little to do with. Um, and that is a, a third uh, type of redemption, redemption from disaster, the, 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 simple, the, the simple rescuing of someone from disaster. Moana redeems her people in the sense that, 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 that she saves them from a disaster that is not of her own making. And then, of course, there's the, the internal redemption within Moana herself, that, that redemption of those two warring sides of herself. Agreed. So a number of pastors in the summertime will do kind of a summer blockbuster series where they look at popular movies and they will preach on them. And so as I was watching, I was thinking about, you know, if I were to preach this in my current context what are some things that I would talk about and for me I would say definitely that sense of calling and also identity of growing into who who we are I think those are the the first themes that I would probably talk about I think the the themes of sin and redemption are are certainly valuable for me the identity piece is kind of even underpinning all of that yeah, and and I, I suppose for me it would be a a, a lesson on repentance, the, the difficulty of repentance, and yet what genuine repentance is like, and how it restores cosmic harmony. I I, I wanted if I know we're sort of in the wrap up phase, but I wanted to to sort of ask a, a question. Uh, what what do you think about Tamatoa? Hmm. Yes. I think Tamatoa is a really good model when we talk about idolatry, commercialism and consumption. We see how Tamatoa is just literally like weighed down with all of this gold and, and all of these shiny things. And um, we there are pastors who even do, there's a, ser- a study in a series called Shiny Gods. Mm-hmm. And it's typically taught as a stewardship series, but it's how do we relate to things? And he collects them and they're part of who he is. And I, I love how easy it is. He, he, he's like, you're trying to get me to talk about yourself, aren't you? Of course I'll talk about myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the narcissism of Tamatoa uh, is fascinating, I think, to juxtapose with the narcissism of Maui, because mm-hmm. I think it's very similar. But I think the difference is, is that Tamatoa has let himself go beyond the point of no return to where there's very little that can be done for him. And even as uh, 
uh, what is it, even as they're escaping from him, his mind still goes back to his, to, to, you still like my song, right? I mean, you know, he, right. after all this, after all of this conflict, his, his primary concern is still, uh, well, yeah, but you know, you still like me, right? And me, me, me. Um, now, of course, uh, I, I think that the, the narcissist, uh, Maui acting out of his own narcissistic injury is very similar, but he, he's not beyond redemption. In fact, he is um, and, and he's redeemed by coming into contact with someone like, like Moana who loves him and, uh, who dares him to break out of his own sense of individualism. And who reminds him that he is still Maui, even when his hook isn't working correctly, <laughs> which is I, Maui at first is like, if I, if I don't, if this isn't working, if I can't do this right, then who am I? She still says, you're still Maui. The last thing I, I wanted to ask about was uh, the, the, the notion of the, the ocean mm. as the Holy Spirit, um, because I, I really think that's how the ocean functions in the film. Mm. But more than that, there is a way in which the ocean in the film, and I think this is true of uh, the ocean in Hebrew scriptures, is, is good. The, the chaos is good. Now, in, in a lot of ancient, well, first off, I'll, I'll go ahead and disclaim, when I use the term myth, I don't mean myth in the sense of being a lie, right? What I mean is a, a myth in the classic sense of the term means a story that helps us to structure our lives, that helps to give meaning to our lives. And so, yes, the I, I may believe that Jesus's uh, atonement was a historical event, but well, it is a myth too, in the sense that it is a, a story by which I you know, structure and live out my life and that gives me a sense of identity. So in the case of, of the ocean, the ocean in, in a lot of ancient mythologies, including the Hebrew myths, uh, does represent chaos. And in a lot of, especially ancient Near Eastern myths, creation constitutes the bringing of order to a primordial chaos. There isn't a creation ex nihilo or a creation out of nothing. Right. Rather, uh, the, the god sees chaos and then organizes it into a kind of order. Now, this is juxtaposed with um, the Hebrew story, the Genesis chapter one, where um, God simply says, you know, it simply says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and, and there is the chaos. The chaos is in what, what God has done. And what that means is, is that the chaos is good. It's mm -hmm. not evil. It's, it's something, it's a kind it's of. the source out of which creation can can happen yes and i love the term tohu vabohu yeah it's just utter and complete chaos and and we see the spirit of god floating over that yeah and, and it's interesting that the spirit of god the 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 holy spirit to look at that myth through a christian lens um is is still a kind of separated from the chaos perhaps interpenetrating the chaos like like god interpenetrates reality in our understanding that panentheistic understanding uh, but in 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 moana the holy spirit is the chaos yeah. is the divine mischief maker Mm -hmm. and influence and, and who, who who influences the grandmother in much the same way as god influences a prophet yes and and i love how the ocean becomes kind of a character unto itself and we see different times where the the water will like mess with milana's hair or just return hey hey back to the boat and just like okay stay there <laughs> you know and then but then there's also that place where there's almost some you could almost look at Moses and the Red Sea being parted for some mm -hmm. of it as she's reaching to pick up these shells. Yes. And the ocean is there and like, okay, here's the heart of Tefiti for you. Mm -hmm. Is it, so, so tell me, uh, does the Holy Spirit ever give you a Gibbs slap? Oh, sure. Every once in a while, I'm just like, okay, God, I get it. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And and sometimes it's through like a conversation with someone. For me, particularly, I think of it in those times when I'm getting discouraged about something. And then I have a moment where I receive consolation and I'm like, 
oh this went really well and this is good and so that it kind of for me it's not so much the gib slap of i've messed up it's the you're doing the right thing kind of thing well and there's I, so what i'm what i'm talking about for those who haven't seen it is the television series ncis, NCIS. i'm not a huge fan of ncis but th- there are parts of it that i like and one of the uh one of the 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 main character uh uh a fellow by the name of gibbs uh, will often quite abusively uh, just give a kind of slap on the head to his uh, his co-workers or his, his his underlings, not to hurt them, but to kind of go, eh, you it's a wake up call. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, he has said sometimes to the to the face is an insult, but to the back of the head is kind of a wake up. Yeah. And I, I feel like uh, uh, the, the way the ocean behaves in, in a number of instances in the movie is it reminded me a lot of Gibbs slaps. And uh, yeah. it, it reminded me a lot of how oftentimes the Holy Spirit will will do a Gibbs slap on me when I'm being obstinate. Now, the, the thing about a Gibbs slap is, is that it's not hurtful. It's even comical. You, you can laugh at it when it happens. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's not shameful. It's just a. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> so. Yeah. So and then the other thing, um, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, I always emphasize that the word for it in in hebrew is ruach in greek is pneumatos and the word is the same for both wind and breath as it is spirit mm-hmm. you know and so i think about the wind and and all of that and the interplay with the water correct me if i'm wrong but it's feminine in both isn't it i believe it is mm. yeah and so it's always I have always conceived of the Holy Spirit. If, if any part of the Trinity is going to be more feminine, it's going to be the Holy Spirit. Mm. I think um, that's just my own personal understanding. I know there are some who would very vehemently argue with me on that. <laughs> well, they'd be wrong anyway. Um, <laughs> you know, I, so I, I think the last thing we should discuss about the film uh, itself is uh, uh, sort of the social implications of mm the movie um of making the movie and mm-hmm. so um obviously you know polynesian culture is not um our culture right. and while um a number of um, polynesian folks were involved very heavily in the making of the movie i believe they even supervised the the production of the film yes um, and in fact i heard a story of one deleted scene that had to do with um, she Moana gets in an argument with her family and she throws down a coconut, which is very disrespectful in their culture because a coconut is considered sacred. And so they said, "Mm, don't do that. And so there have been some shaping of the narrative because of some of that supervision. Nevertheless, Disney's has a very, very white, I, I, I think oftentimes very liberal in a broad sense of the term audience. And um, does the making of this film and at a more fundamental level, does our discussion of it, mm. is it in some sense problematic? Does it, I mean, I, of course, is it the case that it can't help but be problematic that we'll always mm. act out of our unjust privilege? Sure. I think, you know, I think, yes, there's always some level of, of challenge with that. I think there are things that we can do to own that a little bit. I think we are still in the phase of just working towards naming and representation. Eventually, we'll get to where we can really make some change and to really address some of those concerns. I think I would argue that we're certainly doing better than even in the 90s with things like Pocahontas, which were much more problematic. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would, if I was listening to this uh, podcast, uh, I suppose I would um, uh, accuse myself uh, primarily of, uh, uh, of you really shouldn't, Andrew, look at this culture through the lens of your um, stories because they're not your stories mm-hmm. and so perhaps the entire project of this podcast is problem or well of this episode of the podcast is 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 problematic and uh, by the way oh listener I would invite you to make those comments uh, in yes. response to this because uh, I, I I wouldn't I, I think it's important to 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 to, to call out uh, those those things 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I think the the challenge has been, and kind of where I said that, that we're getting to the naming and representation phase. In the past, the fact is that we haven't made movies that have centered on characters of different cultures other than white Eurocentric, <laughs> you know, and we're very slowly starting to see more that are starting to. And I think if they're telling the stories, they're starting to involve more people from those cultures. Um, there's still the element of it's still somewhat capitalistic and exploitative of the economics you know they're not doing it out of goodness of their hearts most i can't speak to motives i'm speculating there but sometimes i wonder if it's more about this is good business Mm. than it is truly sometimes about um doing the right thing let's make stories that center around people of different cultures so tell us what movie we'll be watching next so you are encouraging me to watch for the first time the day after which is a 1983 mm-hmm. movie um made for tv that is post-nuclear apocalyptic and then there's also the round panel discussion that was held afterwards discussing the movie with some of the great thinkers of our day and so i'm excited i have not seen the movie and i look forward to kind of seeing how they talk about these different topics and um i understand it's going to be kind of a more challenging one (laughs) and so i'm kind of mentally preparing myself for that the day after a uh, movie about nuclear war is a film where uh, uh, ABC had to arrange telecounselors to stand by for folks to call in after they had seen uh, the film. Of course, it was taking place uh, or the movie was made at a time when the Cold War was heating up again. Uh, they were ending the period of detente between the Soviet Union and the United States, or it had ended after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, I think in 79. And uh, now the risk of nuclear war had become far greater. But we'll be, we're going to be watching and uh, discussing that film uh, for our next episode. And, and we'll also, as, as, as Pastor Michelle said, be watching a panel discussion featuring the, the likes of the great Ted Koppel, Ellie Wiesel, um, Bob McNamara, um, uh, Henry Kissinger, um, William F. Buckley Jr. Um, and uh, as he says with a scrunched face. Yeah, if you couldn't couldn't hear me, I was a little uh, angry when I say his name, as I am always. And then Carl Sagan. <laughs> and of course, the wonderful Carl Sagan. Uh, so so we're going to be talking about nuclear war, and we're going to be talking about uh, tragedy. And uh, so this is our first episode, and uh, our podcast will um, continue uh, as as long as, uh, as 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 there is interest for it. Uh, we're thankful to those of you who listen to us. Uh, uh, again, we discussed this week the wonderful film Moana, and we look forward to discussing um, uh, not only the day after, but a number of other uh, great movies. So. We do hope that you will continue to stay in conversation with us and provide feedback because this is truly for you. Thank you for joining us on A Pastor and a Priest Walk Into a Movie Theater. We were edited by and definitions and scripture readings were provided by Wesley Morrison Sloat. And our music was composed and recorded by Gail Gallagher. A Pastor and a Priest Walk Into a Movie Theater is a production of New Faith New Media. If you like what you've heard here, please check out NFNM's other podcast, Faith and What Resonates, hosted by Gail Gallagher. If you really like what you've heard, please like the New Faith New Media page on Facebook and consider becoming a patron of NFNM at www.patreon.com NFNM. Patrons can gain access to our private comedy roundtable show, Blessed Lunatics, in which the hosts of both podcasts, along with editor Wesley, riff on a variety of subjects and seek to access the divine through laughter. <laughs>